Welcome to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Tonight on Zocalo, what's wrong with philanthropy in L.A.? Robert K. Ross, president and CEO of the California Endowment, discusses the challenges facing L.A.'s philanthropic community. In a lecture recorded live at the Los Angeles Central Library as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series, Dr. Ross shares the crucial lessons he's learned on his varied career path, from his early days as an inner-city pediatrician to his current position as head of California's largest private health foundation. This is my first immersion into the Zocalo experience. I learned a new word tonight called Zocolocos. Is that it? Zocolocos? That there's some portion of you that just religiously come to these things um, and and engage. So thank you for having me. And then the, I guess many of the visitors and ringers among us are those of us that are in the world of philanthropy and the nonprofit sector who may not regularly attend these sessions. Uh, So it's kind of a mixed, interesting audience, the usual eclectic Los Angeles crowd. So I will struggle a bit with how to weave together a set of messages that make sense to most of you, if not all of you. But certainly uh, I come here in the context of uh, having been, this is now my sixth year in the city of Los Angeles, and it took me about three and a half years before I could say I love Los Angeles. Uh, it, It took me a while. But those of us who are imports to this community often end up, just like converts to a religion, tend to be more zealous and passionate than perhaps those who are from here. This is an extraordinary, extraordinary community and region. It is in that vein that I come to you uh, humbly to share some views and some thoughts about how to advance well-being in this region and this community. I'm going to have some context-setting comments and then end with some suggestions about how we can, particularly from our sector, uh, the philanthropic sector, how we can and must do a better job of executing our missions, and that is to lift up health and well-being for all here in Los Angeles County. I also want to acknowledge there are a number of philanthropic leaders and thinkers that I consulted with prior to formulating my comments and remarks. Amanda Roundsville from my staff also helped me talk to some folks and you know, where are folks, if you had this opportunity to talk about what philanthropy needs to do, must do better, what's wrong with philanthropy in our region, those individuals were given an opportunity to kind of weigh in. And the first observation I'll make was that I saw actually quite a remarkable confluence of thoughts and ideas from those individuals that we, some of them actually wanted to remain nameless and didn't want to be quoted, um, but actually was a great experience for me just preparing for this in hearing from our philanthropic colleagues in the sector about what it is that we must and we can do. Let me provide some sense of context, because if I don't give you some of the assumptions that I bring and we bring as a foundation at the California Endowment to the table, you won't get the punchline. And you still may not get the punchline, even if you do get the context. But it'll help you get an understanding of the alignment between the assumptions that we have about where we are, the values that we bring to the table, and then therefore what ends up on the refrigerator door as the to-do list. A little bit about my background. I need to put it for you in context. This is my third career. My first career was as a practicing pediatrician in what was then and remains now one of the poorest communities in America, a place called Camden, New Jersey, just across the river from Philadelphia, a community of around 130,000 
residents. It may have grown slightly since then. It was a community suffering from abject um, poverty then, continues to suffer from abject poverty now, and a lack of leadership. I think they've had uh, a running record of four consecutive mayors that were indicted while in office, and I think they're doing a little bit better now. The reason I bring up my experience in Camden is because it very much shaped and colored my view about what needs to happen to lift up communities that are at the margin, that are disenfranchised, that are marginalized, that are being segregated from meaningful and valuable opportunity. In 1984, when I was a freshly minted pediatrician coming off my pediatric residency at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, I was deposited in Camden, New Jersey. I received a federal government scholarship for medical school, and you had to pay them back by serving in a low-income community. It was a great deal for me because it's something I wanted to do anyway. And I practice in a community health center in Camden, New Jersey, population roughly 50% African-American, 50% Latino, and very low income, as I mentioned major health challenges. But while I was there, there was a fascinating and tragic phenomenon that was unfolding before my eyes as a practicing physician in that community. And within a fairly short period of time, I witnessed a significant increase in a broad range of health and well-being factors that were going on in this community, from domestic violence to homicide rates to gang violence to child abuse to sexually transmitted diseases, to premature births, infant mortality. All of these things were just going off the charts and through the roof. And this phenomenon was not isolated to Camden, New Jersey. This was now happening actually across the country in major urban areas and particularly in large eastern locales. Let me just see if you're awake. Uh, What happened in 1984 to 1985 that was the primary catalytic event for this quick and rapid reduction of well-being and healthy lifestyles in Camden. Okay, invariably, someone tries to blame Ronald Reagan. Um, (laughs) He he was the president then. Uh, Perhaps we can blame Ronald Reagan for the response to this issue, but it wasn't crack cocaine. Okay, Crack cocaine was the triggering catalytic event because before 1984, you could not access cocaine if you were a poor person. Okay? It wasn't available to you. Cocaine was a fairly expensive drug. You had to have at least $100 in order to purchase it. And with the evil genius that developed crack cocaine, the price point for cocaine now drops from $100 and up to $5. So for $5, if you are poor and struggling in Camden or Detroit or New York or Philadelphia or South Central Los Angeles, you can now buy a passport out of your misery for $5. Cocaine is a short-acting, intensely addictive, intensely pleasurable drug. It gets metabolized very quickly, very different than heroin, which kind of hangs around the body for several hours, and heroin addicts can actually, to a certain extent, function. Some of the greatest jazz musicians have been heroin addicts for many years. You don't find that with crack cocaine. Your life goes down into a vortex, right down into the toilet bowl, and you end up on the street, in jail, or dead. That's sort of the path, the natural progression. And for me, what was the wake-up call was being trained as a physician, as someone who saw himself as a tool to help and assist communities in improving their health and well-being. My training was very much a provider-patient, doctor-to-patient kind of phenomenon. 
You're trained to deal with a patient in the context of a problem or a health issue. You do an examination, you get a history, you write a prescription, you have them come back in three months or six months or a year. But what was happening in terms of how crack cocaine was influencing the dynamics within a family, within a neighborhood, young black males and Hispanic males now making money by selling crack cocaine instead of working at McDonald's for minimum wage, men uh, extracting violence on their wives and their girlfriends because they were addicted, crime rates increasing and property crime rates increasing because crack addicts who need to support their habit, the men, have to break into cars and break into homes and steal money from grandmothers in order to support their habit. If you're a woman and you're addicted to crack cocaine, obviously what follows is prostitution and rapid increases in sexually transmitted diseases such as syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and other kinds of diseases. Pregnant women are either delaying or ignoring their prenatal care. Cocaine is a muscular stimulant. The uterus is a muscular organ. So now we are seeing untold numbers of babies that are being born premature at 24, 25, 26, 27 weeks gestation instead of the usual 40. These babies are born at a pound, a pound and a half, maybe even half a pound. That was the crack baby and the onset of the crack baby. So I want you to get a a picture of where things broke down for me as a practicing physician feeling responsible to the needs of this community. And now I am dealing with, and we are dealing with as health professionals, a phenomenon for which we have no prescription. And that was sort of my wake-up call, which led me to the next career move, which was to think about broader issues of policy and public policy. Although I felt terrifically motivated by seeing patients and families and treating kids, I felt like I needed to get back upstream a bit and sort of find out what was going on, why were all these bodies flowing down the river, what was going on upstream. At that time, I recall thinking, I want to have an influence on public policy, and I've got to get to Washington. That was then. That was then. The next career for me was in the public sector. And in the public sector, I worked in local health departments. I was the public health commissioner, they call it, in the East Coast, uh, director out here. And I worked for two mayors in Philadelphia, Wilson Good, and then Ed Rendell. Ed Rendell now running for, for governor uh, for second term in Pennsylvania. And so I made the shift from retail medicine to wholesale medicine, where now instead of having a patient as my customer, it is now a community. And that's what public health does. You look at a population as your customer. And in the shift from the practice of medicine on a retail level to working in a policy environment, even though it's at the local level, I got another wake-up call. And that wake-up call was how policymakers make decisions and why they make decisions they make how they don't make the decisions they don't make, and how does the machine work. And that is, uh, if you haven't had an opportunity to work in the public sector, it is much like uh, making sausage. But everything that I was taught and trained in my university background, which was the importance of good data and good evidence, and I remember my public health and health management professor lecturing to our class at the University of Pennsylvania saying, good data drives good policy, and don't you forget it. And by the time I got to the city of Philadelphia, I said, what happened to the good data drives good policy part? Second lesson. Third lesson is now I'm in this field of philanthropy, and I want to thank our board of directors at the California Endowment for taking a chance on someone who had very little to no philanthropic background to run this foundation. I've been in the field now for six years, I still feel like I'm on a learning curve as a philanthropic professional, and we're on a learning curve as a foundation. 
Uh, our foundation is now 10 years old. We're kind of a kid on the block. But our foundation, in terms of its age, is not much different than the field of philanthropy within Los Angeles. I think two-thirds of foundations in Los Angeles are less than 15 years old. So much of the largesse of philanthropy is still young and trying to find and sort its way. Um, it's different than perhaps the East Coast, but I think it's an opportunity for us to uh, not be wedded to concretize notions of how to drive change and move things forward. So I wanted to give you that context in terms of, because it's going to influence what I share with you uh, in terms of what philanthropy must do differently. You're listening to Robert K. Ross, MD, President of the California Endowment. This is Zocalo. Not turning your brain off for the summer? Neither are we. Join Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series for thought-provoking live events all summer long, including our next event on August 15th, Rich Friends, Poor Us, Is Status Anxiety the Newest Form of Depression? A conversation with Megan Dom, Nicole Holofcener, and Sandra Singlow. Visit our website to reserve seats and to download past radio programs. Go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We return now to Robert K. Ross, M.D. Second point of context. Where are we? How thriving and healthy is our democracy? How healthy and thriving is our Los Angeles? We are now facing a situation where we have a range of unsustainable trends in Los Angeles, and more broadly speaking in this country, but certainly here in Los Angeles. Among them, poverty. We seem to have given up on the war on poverty. Um, I thought for a minute we might think about it again after Hurricane Katrina. Remember in the days and weeks sort of following Hurricane Katrina and the pictures and photographs and the stories about Americans left utterly behind and to fend for themselves, the face of poverty in America in Time magazine and Newsweek magazine, and we'll never look at poverty the same, and we're getting a wake-up call about poverty, and, and, and this will start the dialogue again about what to do about poverty. Bulldinky. That has not happened. Within 120 days after Hurricane Katrina, what did Congress do? Congress scaled back on the Medicaid program, the nutrition programs, In fact, a food program for the elderly actually was eliminated within 120 days after Katrina, pulling back on affordable housing and college tuition. So in other words, Katrina happened, and the federal government effectively shrugged its shoulders. Oh, well. Message to us, to those of us that actually care about issues of poverty and inequity, we're on our own. I understand uh, Tori Osborne shared with me that we have um, 88,000 homeless people and we have 162,000 millionaires in Los Angeles. Okay. The wealth gap between rich and poor, that reality is not sustainable. That is not a sustainable trend for something remotely resembling a healthy Los Angeles and a healthy democracy. Additional unsustainable trend is what's going on with high school dropout rates. Forget about the arguing over the percentage points and the LAUSD data versus what other people are saying. I mean, Half of our particularly black and brown men dropping out of high school is not a sustainable trend for a thriving and vibrant democracy. Related to that, incarceration and recidivism. The numbers of particularly, again, black and brown men that are being incarcerated, particularly if you don't have a high school diploma, is not sustainable. And then finally, the issue near and dear to our hearts of the California Endowment, health care. The numbers of uninsured, the lack of affordability, and add to that, unaffordability of housing. And there are other issues. 
But those are five or six that set the stage for a reality check for all of us that whatever we are doing is not enough and it is not working. That is the vantage point. That is the context through which I bring to you what must philanthropy do differently. In addition, what is the response of the policymaking leadership to address these challenges that are very real and are threatening a vibrant, sustainable, meaningful, democratic society in this country? Well, at the federal government, what do you have? Do you have on any of the issues that I mentioned to you, do you have a federal blueprint or a strategy for addressing any of those issues in a meaningful way? No. You might argue in education with no child left behind, and you know, I'm not an education expert, but certainly decidedly mixed reviews on the federal government's success with no child left behind. So on the major issues and challenges that we have, you can add transportation, you can add the environment, all those issues, we see virtually zero lack of a national strategy or blueprint for solving those problems. What you have right now defined in Washington is ideological partisan bickering through which ideas can't possibly break through the ideologies. The ideas for change, the ideas for problem solving, and you can pick an example, okay? Immigration reform, campaign finance reform, just pick an issue. Pragmatic, workable ways to solve problems that are just being suffocated by the atmosphere that's going on in Washington. It's not just this year or this month. It's not like this is a bad year in Washington. It's been like that for really quite some time. When a senator, Senator McCain in this instance, has been advocating for campaign finance reform for quite some time, and he's labeled as a political maverick, we're in trouble. 80% plus of Americans when polls say, listen, we've got to do something about campaign finance reform. But he's the maverick. At the state level, probably doing maybe slightly better than from the federal level, but Sacramento, as we all know, let's be real, and this is not an indictment of all or even most elected officials. Many of you in this room know elected officials. There are many of them great people, very good people. But whatever the atmosphere is up there, again, mostly paralyzed by bipartisan and ideological bickering stalemate paralysis. So what I'm trying to get you to join with me on in terms of the context and the ecology of where philanthropy finds itself is that we have serious unsustainable trends and threats to equity and advancing well-being for all, not just in Los Angeles, not just in California, but nationally. And looking towards Washington, looking towards Sacramento, to have them lead the way and demonstrate the path for us to follow and join on solving these problems seems like a far-off dream. It means that it provides a greater sense of responsibility and burden on those of us in local communities and at the local level to drive and move change. Problem-solving change in some cases may take boldly different strategies. In other cases, um, incremental, pragmatic ways on education, on housing, on health care. You can have folks argue, but bottom line is the burden is on us here. Next point, what does philanthropy bring to the table? Well, I want to make a distinction for you. If you remember nothing else, um, remember this. I wanted you to understand the definitional differences between philanthropy and charity. Philanthropy is defined as the effort to advance human well-being, et cetera, et cetera. Charity is defined as help or relief given to the poor. Philanthropy has a lot of money. 
There are, I think, close to 2,000 foundations here in Los Angeles. I don't know what the, uh, what the collective wealth of those organizations is, but let's presume it has a lot of zeros behind it, and philanthropy has a great deal of resources. However, in context, and let me talk about it from the standpoint of our foundation, the California Endowment, we are a $3.5 billion foundation in terms of assets. It's a lot of money. In our 10-year history, we've provided $1.7 billion in grants, on any given year, we give about 160 to $165 million in grants. Lots of zeros sounds like huge amounts of money. In context, however, what we spend in a year in grant making, which is about $160 million or so, represents 0.3% of the state's Medi-Cal budget. What we've spent in our 10-year history, $1.7 billion dollars, is how much money the state will spend in the Medi-Cal program between now and June 20th. And it goes on and so on and so on for virtually any foundation or philanthropic enterprise. The dollars seem huge and largesse and, oh, my God, all that money, and why can't they just get things fixed and solved? And I'm trying to make the case here that it's going to, that, that, that this is actually not primarily about money and the size of it and the largesse of it. It is about the discretionary nature of it. And I want to make the case to you that philanthropic dollars need to be viewed as drops of water to a thirsting man who's trying to cross the Sahara Desert. These are really precious dollars. When I was a health director at the county of San Diego, I had a billion-dollar budget. I had five departments reporting to me, health, social services, aging, a couple of other departments. Billion-dollar budget, ostensibly on paper, made me sort of a powerful guy in San Diego. When you really analyzed sort of the source of those resources and the source of those dollars, and this is sort of the way the public sector, how the public sector is organized, most of those dollars are federal funding stream dollars, state funding stream dollars, Ryan White, Title V MCH block grant, um, AB 2034, which is for left-handed kids with autism. There is a sort of an acronymic-laden alphabet soup of where these dollars come from. And and by the time they get down to the local level and down to the county level, you probably have 1% or less discretionary resources. Okay? So the money actually comes to you with the decisions made about how to spend it. And boards of supervisors are usually grappling with, do we give it to that provider or this contractor or do we contract it out or do we, you know, create the services? I mean, actually, those are the decisions at the local level that are being made with those resources, which is why of the $1.7 trillion spent in healthcare in this country, less than 4% is spent on prevention. Okay, so you see the mismatch between the resources and the issues and the challenges and what the public sector, although the dollars are huge, the thinking has already been done in Washington and Sacramento by the time the resources get here. So, case in point is, and I want you now to to close your eyes for a second and think as a philanthropist. I'm going to give you two scenarios, and I want you to think about how you would manage them. Scenario A, your rich uncle, pretend with me, your rich uncle has died and left you a bunch of money, but left you $100,000 to decide how to spend it on a charitable purpose. And in the instructions through the attorney in the will is he wants to spend it on homelessness. And your rich uncle has left you as the custodian in charge of what to do with that $100,000. So now you have this $100,000. You know you need to spend it on homelessness. How are you going to spend it? Where are you going to put it? 
So you talk to a friend, and a friend says, you know, I don't know what you would do with this, but why don't you um, call the community foundation? They do stuff like that. They advise people on what to do with resources. Okay. So you call the community foundation. Community foundation says, we'd be happy to help you think about this and give you some options. They come back to you with three options. Option A, to give $100,000 to a homeless services provider in Skid Row, and in the write-up that comes before you, this homeless services provider has been a, is a well-known, well-established nonprofit. And with your $100,000, you can provide meals and shelter for 500 people over the course of a year. Okay? So I feel good about that. Option B, to take that $100,000 and rather than giving it all to one provider, to give it to five um, homeless services providers that are all working on Skid Row, $20,000 each. VOA, Midnight Mission, good organizations. Third option, there is a new and emerging effort that is uh, an organization that's trying to organize providers and homeless people to advocate for integrated services and better funding. Now, in that scenario, therein lies the Sophie's choice for philanthropy. Okay? You have this money. It seems like a lot of money, but it's a limited pot. The range of options about where to send that money is broad and wide. And among the options before you is, do you put this money in services or you'd put this money in change? As a foundation president, as California down, we've struggled with this issue with our board of directors, with our staff. Do we write grants to community health clinics to help them provide free care to people who don't have health insurance? Or do we put the money in organizations that are trying to advocate for a newly reformed healthcare system that works better for the uninsured? Now, obviously, I'm kind of setting you up here. But the point I'm making is if you think about philanthropic dollars as do-gooder charity money that helps feed homeless people and get health care to people who don't have health insurance or buys books for kids in school, to a large extent, what you are doing is you are letting the public sector and the policymakers off the hook. Okay. That is not to say, that is not to say that providing grant dollars or resources to provide charity care is a bad thing. Of course it's a good thing. The Bible says it's a good thing. How could it not be a good thing? But I need you to understand in context when you have discretionary dollars and foundation dollars are relatively discretionary. Public sector dollars are large but very siloed. The public sector responds to votes and political perceptions. The corporate sector responds to quarterly profits. This is not to say that corporate philanthropy isn't doing good things. But at the end of the day, the business sector and the corporate sector, where their bread is buttered, is the quarterly profit and the quarterly profit statement. For elected officials, their bread is buttered in the votes. Who else has resources of some reasonable size that can meaningfully look at what it's going to take to meaningfully solve problems in a way that thinks about doing business differently? The answer to that is philanthropy. You're listening to Robert K. Ross, MD, President and CEO of the California Endowment. This is Zocalo a cultural forum for the new L.A. Summer may be here, but Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series is not taking a vacation. Our live events are going strong all summer long. 
including on August 15th, Rich Friends, Poor Us. Is Status Anxiety the Newest Form of Depression? A conversation with Megan Dom, Nicole Holofcener, and Sandra Singlow. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In a moment, we return to Robert K. Ross, M.D. Stay tuned to Zocalo. There are a little bit of funk and a little bit of fun. He learned his tunes from the Bible when his mama told him what he could eat. So he jumped on top of his organ when he drove it down Peachtree Street. The music of the Code Talkers. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Weekday mornings on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Ted Chen. Coming up on Monday's Air Talk, Larry Mantle heads to the border. He'll talk about the logistics and challenges of day-to-day border enforcement, how responsibilities are divided between the Border Patrol, Customs and Border Protection, and the National Guard. He'll also talk cross-border economics, how maquiladoras affect economies on both sides, and how large shopping malls on the U.S. side is impacting illegal immigration. That's coming up Monday on Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. Every afternoon on All Things Considered, we're traveling the globe to get you the story. Which means from west to east and the south, but also for the first time in the north. On the north-south conflict. The street as looks east and west is all ash. Moving east and north to find affordable homes. Across the street or around the world, All Things Considered from NPR News. Weekday afternoon starting at 3.30 on 89.3 KPCC. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We return now to Robert K. Ross, M.D., President and CEO of the California Endowment, speaking on What's Wrong with Philanthropy in L.A.? This lecture was recorded live at the Los Angeles Central Library as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. So the case I want to make, and uh, there's a, a wonderful adage by our friends at the Liberty Hill Foundation that I wish I had thought of first. Which, which their adage is change, not charity. And I'm thinking about whether I should do a, a hostile takeover of the Liberty Hill Foundation. <laughs> Some kind of leverage buyout, um, Jeffrey Richardson. Jeffrey's thinking how much money it would take for, for us to, 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 to do that. Um, I love that adage, change, not charity. Again, it's not that charity is a bad thing, but when you have limited precious dollars, how do you use them? Now, a couple of examples of change, not charity, a couple of examples of what philanthropy must do better. In short, we've got to tear down three Berlin walls that gets philanthropy in the game in terms of social change and problem solving. The first wall is the wall that exists with one another. Going back to the example of the $100,000, what if each of you were notified by a rich uncle that you were being left $100,000 to spend on homelessness? Wouldn't the coordination of the, and the use of those dollars be better served if we all got in one room at one time and talked about how we might want to use those resources. And philanthropy is really good at forcing and encouraging and cajoling nonprofits and grantees to collaborate and partner for better results. We are largely awful in acting on that ourselves. 
And philanthropy, the philanthropic sector very much is like herding cats. You've got big foundations, small foundations, family foundations. I mean, there's a whole range of foundations out there. So getting them to sort of march in tune or to get in the same boat and row in the same direction is not an easy thing to do. But we have got to figure it out. The second wall that needs to come down is this wall between the nonprofit sector and community-based leaders and philanthropy. There's a power gradient there. And that power gradient says, we have the money and you need it. And that power gradient plays out in a whole range of ways that adds up to us having less than a candid and therefore productive relationship about driving a change agenda. And that conversation must become candid. In fact, I view nonprofits and grantees that are grant seekers very much on the same continuum as foundations. We have a social mission to uplift the underserved and advance health and well-being. Nonprofits have a social mission that wants to do the same. We have a limited amount of resources. They have a limited amount of resources. We have some assets. They have some assets. But this power gradient that goes on between the grant seeker and the grant maker is really standing in the way of meaningful partnerships and true collaboration for change between the nonprofit sector and grantees and community-based organizations and and us in philanthropy. And it plays out in a whole variety of ways. Among them is how people treat me as a foundation officer. I know my jokes are not that funny. I know I'm not that good-looking. I know my IQ didn't get raised from when I used to work for the county. Okay? And I know every one of my remarks is not witty or insightful. But this, this kind of alter... Uh, that we either place ourselves on or that grant seekers play is, is just not good for the sector and it's not good for the community that we serve. So that wall has got to come down. Last wall. In philanthropy, we have a tendency to be either snooty or scared or intimidated or too busy to deal with the public sector. I have just laid out to you why it's critical that problem solving on issues of poverty, of health care, of housing and transportation have got to increasingly come from local communities. And policymaking is a dirty game. It's a, it's a difference. But, you know, philanthropy kind of feels like a video game of football or baseball. Public sector policymaking is football on the field, right? You get bloody. You get hurt. You get your teeth knocked out. You make first downs. You get tackled. You lose the, I mean, all kinds of things sort of happen. It's a contact sport. Moving a change agenda is a contact sport. As philanthropists, we need to understand that we have got to get on the field. And it means a meaningful engagement with policymakers and elected officials that for a variety of reasons, philanthropy is loath to intersect with and interact with. And we've got to get away from this notion of ATM philanthropy, where a grant seeker shoves a proposal in a slot, whispers some incantations... (laughs) and then hopes that a check comes out and that there's not a meaningful partnership and engagement on how do we move the issue forward. Case in point, this is actually a real story. Got a phone call last week, a grantee of ours in Southern California who we provided a grant to uh, who's working with ex-felons. I actually visited the program maybe six or nine months ago. Thought it was a great program. At that point, they didn't have any information or data about how the program was going. What they do is they take ex-felons, they integrate the health services and health supports, mental health, drug treatment, housing, job training, and they move ex-felons into being a tax-paying, responsible citizen. 
executive director of this community-based organization that's running this program calls me, leaves a message from my secretary. I have to speak to Dr. Ross. I have exciting news for him that I'm pretty excited about. I call him back. Scott, how you doing? What happened? Doc, we just got our evaluation back, and the university evaluation shows that the two-year state recidivism rate of people returning to prison after they've been let out of prison is 70%. For the population of ex-felons served by this particular program, it was 30%. A pretty remarkable and significant improvement on an issue that the public believes is actually intractable. I mean, the public believes that the best thing to do with these people is to put them in jail. And then put him back again. Just keep him out of my neighborhood. So I congratulate Scott. Scott, that's great news. And I hang up the phone. Question to you. If your foundation president and a nonprofit organization that you're funding calls you with that kind of news, what do you do? How do you handle it? Now, there are a variety of ways to answer that question. One way is to say, okay, um, let me know when the evaluation report is done and send me a copy. Okay, sounds like we could do a policy brief. And foundations, we're famous for that. We do these glossy policy briefs with, you know, graphs and pictures, and and then we kind of put them up on our website and when we send them out. The defect is actually not in the lack of problem-solving ideas and approaches. At the federal level, I actually have zero confidence that they know what the meaningful change strategies are to solve problems here in Los Angeles. I have slightly better confidence in Sacramento. My confidence level goes up as you get closer and closer to the communities where the problems are. In this case, this nonprofit provider is onto something that the state of California needs to think about in terms of the madness that is going on in incarceration and recidivism. How do you get that program and what it's doing and mobilize it to scale? What we're really good at actually is asking people to evaluate what they're doing. We're actually pretty good at getting reports out about what these numbers look like. We are just plain awful and pathetic as a field in terms of what it takes to lift up that program and what it's doing and work with advocacy organizations, policymakers, and the public to impose the will of that approach on systemic change. Because that stuff's called politics. It's kind of a dirty, nasty game, right? And in the academic sector and in the philanthropic sector, we have been far too sterile about what it takes to move a change agenda. I would argue that it takes what Elizabeth Shore has called no stories without data and no data without stories. Okay? And there's a third leg to that stool, which is the advocacy to move it forward. So you've got to have something on the ground that works. We've got to be relentless about getting the data. We're actually pretty good about that. Then you've got to have the organizational capacity in communities to not only carry those services out in a way that works, but then transcends that pilot program to move it to broader change. Tori Osborne, who's now left Liberty Hill and is now working for the mayor's office, and the Hilton Foundation and the Weingart Foundation know that homelessness is not an intractable problem. It is a solvable problem. Other cities are actually solving it. Maybe not 100% completely solved, but they are making significant headway. I would argue that it is our burden in the field of philanthropy and in the nonprofit sector. It is our burden and our responsibility to join hands and fight that battle for how you move that approach from a nice little pilot project to a change strategy. It's got to break through that bipartisan ideological bickering that suffocates it and keeps it where it is. 
And the only way you can do that is by engaging community-based mobilizers that can say, yes, this kind of approach that's going on at that nonprofit is important to this community, and we want it, and you better look at it. You know, when I left that, uh, that program that I visited six months ago, I actually called the governor's office on the I-5 for my cell phone. Now, that's not lobbying, okay? I know there's a lobbying restriction for most foundations. That's not lobbying. Okay. I left a message with the governor's office. I sent the governor's office uh, and the correctional secretary for the state of California a letter letting him know about this program. I thought it was a great program. I didn't hear anything from him. Okay. Now I have my phone call. I have some data coming. Okay, so now I got numbers to go with the story. And now we need to, as a foundation, think about how do we get this approach on the radar screen and stealing the hearts and minds of policymakers. And that's a different kind of conversation than the power gradient conversation of we had the money and you need it and here's your grant and send in a report when you're done. It is a message that says we will walk down this path with you in support, not because we're smarter than you, but because we have the capacity to move precious discretionary resources to drive change. You're listening to California Endowment CEO and President Robert K. Rosp, MD. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., Next week on Zocalo, acclaimed actress Amy Brenneman and her husband, director Brad Silberlane, address the question, do popular artists have a moral responsibility? Recorded live at the Kirk Douglas Theater as part of the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series. Also, Lee Curran discusses the Virginia Avenue Project, a free after-school performing arts program for kids. Interview by Jennifer Berry. Visit our website for information on upcoming events and to download past radio programs. Go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. In a moment, we'll return to Robert K. Ross, M.D., President and CEO of the California Endowment on What's Wrong with Philanthropy in L.A. Stay tuned to Zocalo. Next time on Day to Day, when Valeria Godinez saw what her bipolar disorder was doing to the one she loved, she decided drugs alone couldn't treat it. The nurse holds your arm. The electricity shoots through your brain for eight seconds. There is no spasm, no noise. It's when the electricity stops that the brain triggers a convulsion. A woman's fight for her sanity and her family. Next time on Day to Day. Weekday mornings at 9 on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Lisa Mullins. This station is committed to keeping you informed about the continuing Middle East crisis. PRI's The World has chronicled the 50-year struggle for land and peace in the region. It's on our website, theworld.org. You'll learn about the events, the people, and the politics that have drawn the Middle East into war again. Find a history of the Middle East online at theworld.org and join us here for the next edition of The World. Weekdays at noon on 89.3 KPCC. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We return now to Dr. Robert K. Ross, president and CEO of the California Endowment, speaking on what's wrong with philanthropy in L.A. So I just want to share with you why the philanthropic resource is so exceedingly precious, given the ecology and the landscape that we find ourselves in right now. And there are other examples of foundations coming together in Pacoima. Uh, Elwood Hopkins is here with Los Angeles Urban Funders. 
We've worked together. We're a variety of foundations. We're all working and supporting efforts in Pacoima. And as a result, after 10 years of funding, we're seeing better student achievement rates, better parental involvement in the schools. These are low-income, predominantly Hispanic, uh, low-achieving school. We're seeing uh, better access to health care, new community bank for the first time in Pacoima because economic development has been supported. So you see how foundations that are in their silo can come together around a neighborhood and say, okay, we're an education funder, but we want to join in partnership around this, what's going on in Pacoima. We're a health funder. We'll do their health funding. This is a, a community development funder. They're going to do that. But what is happening is that we're seeing a synergy because we've climbed out of our silos to support meaningful, sustainable change in a community like Pacoima. On kids in health coverage, Santa Clara and Alameda found ways to move private sector and public sector dollars to create universal health coverage for kids in those counties. No act of Congress, no bill from the legislature, just went and did it. And us, in partnership with other health funders, have helped to replicate those models. There are now 18 of those counties around the state. Those counties are now working an advocacy agenda, and they now have not only a ballot initiative, but some legislation that they're pushing to achieve the vision of every, the simple vision of having every child having health insurance covered in the state of California. Okay? Grassroots to treetops, and advocacy driving the agenda. So what I want to say is this is not from sort of a know-it-all foundation that has mastered the art of philanthropy. We certainly know what we need to do better. There are great examples of philanthropy stepping out on these three areas of where these Berlin walls need to come down. But the stakes are too high. The trends are dangerously unsustainable for thriving Los Angeles. And the pressure is on us, not just in philanthropy but as Angelinos, to begin to demonstrate legitimate, meaningful problem-solving for the state of California and the rest of the nation. Demographically, we are today where they are going to be in 10 or 15 years. San Francisco would argue that they're the incubator. I would say whatever happens in San Francisco is not generalizable. I love San Francisco, but it's the People's Republic of San Francisco. Politically, what San Francisco looks like looks like nowhere else in the country. Okay? Uh, let me close with what we need to have. Number one, uh, there is an association of regional grant makers called Southern California Grant Makers. It has been functioning largely as a membership organization to support philanthropic needs. I'm on the board, so I'm pointing a finger to ourselves. That organization must become re-energized and retooled to think about collaborative, meaningful, advocacy-driven, change-driven philanthropy. Secondly, we need to open up a conversation with our nonprofit sector providers, colleagues, and friends and partners about a candid relationship, about one that's based on honesty and a shared mission and a shared sense of values. And thirdly, we've got to get in the game. Homelessness in Skid Row is one example. I think you'll see Weingart Foundation, Hilton Foundation. We're going to try and support that effort as well, working with elected officials to try and move that issue forward. Um, Tori's going to help us with that as she was moved from philanthropy to, to the mayor's office. And we cannot miss the opportunity of having an energetic, charismatic, bridge-building mayor and attach our car to that train. It doesn't mean we have to cozy up to the mayor and, and just become a checkbook for what Mayor Villagos is trying to do. But there is a different kind of dynamic that's coming out of City Hall right now in problem-solving. We've got to take advantage of it. Thank you very much. You're listening to Robert K. Ross, M.D., president of the California Endowment. This is Zocalo. 
Join Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series for thought-provoking live events all summer long, including our next event on August 15th, Rich Friends, Poor Us, Is Status Anxiety the Newest Form of Depression? A conversation with Megan Dom, Nicole Holofcener, and Sandra Singlow. This event at the National Center for the Preservation of Democracy is free, but reservations are required. Visit our website to reserve your seats and to download past radio programs. Go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. Up next, Dr. Ross takes questions from the Zocalo audience. Uh, you mentioned philanthropy from several sectors, but you didn't mention individuals. And actually, the vast majority of giving in this country comes from individuals. How might foundations engage in changing the way that individuals who have wealth think about how they give out that money and get their hands dirty as well? Yeah, thank you. Great question. And one uh, I did want to get to, so thanks for bringing it up. Gwen Walden, who's here with my staff and runs our Center for Healthy Communities, and uh, Gwen, I'm not sure where you are, but one of the things that Gwen keeps bugging me about is, boss, we got to think about the intergenerational transfer of wealth that is historic and unprecedented and that is coming, and that we will have new foundations, many of them small family foundations, and much more individual giving. And USC, in their study, shows that we are actually a net exporter of foundation giving as Los Angeles-based foundation, so that we export more dollars to other places than we're getting more dollars that are staying here in Los Angeles. So I think what needs to happen is regional and nonprofit sector organizations, we have got to get on the same page about a change agenda. Because most people, okay, they can do their own giving, but they do want to be connected to something bigger than themselves. They do want to know that they're contributing to something that has the sense and feel of a movement and of momentum. And in my view, it is a regional association of grant makers as an organization, in this case, Southern California grant makers, that has the ability to kind of survey the landscape, who's doing what, who's spending money where, what foundation, you know, the California Community Foundation it can play an active role here. I think the United Way as well. How do we all get on the same page about a change agenda for our community? The reason why I'm plugging and pushing this organization that's probably invisible to 99% of Angelinos is because foundations won't follow anybody, right? They're not going to go do it just because I came in here and gave the speech. Someone has to be charged with surveying the landscape of where the issues are, where the challenges are, and who is funding what where. And we can talk about a more strategic and partnership approach of philanthropy that includes individual giving, individual donors, and particularly smaller family foundations. Uh, what would have happened if Scott's program hadn't worked? Would he have felt free to call you and say, Doc, there's something wrong. Recidivism is now 110%. Um, as I teach statistics, most innovations fail. And right. is there a culture in the philanthropic community to encourage the sharing of failures? Uh, no. Great question. Um, many foundations do it better than others. One of the myths that need to be exploded, certainly a myth for me that was exploded, was this notion of philanthropy and the philanthropic sector as being risk takers. It is a, uh, I think our field is, is frighteningly risk averse. And the sharing of candid experiences is one of the symptoms of that. Um, I think it has uh, contaminated the relationship between nonprofit uh, providers and grantees and philanthropy and those of us in foundations. And I think this is one of those things where we're just going to have to talk ourselves through it. 
How do we structure that conversation and that dialogue to uh, improve candor between the grantee and the grantor and risk-taking among foundations? I mean, the the way, I think, to address uh, risk-taking is actually if, and you think about this at our own foundation, is maybe you just set aside a pool, work it out with your board of directors. We're going to do, you know, 10% of our grants or 15% of our grants, 20% of our grants are going to be really risky, okay, rather than functioning under the pretense that we're making risky grants because we're really not, Okay. Uh, and an oft-told story in philanthropy right now is if, if a reincarnated Martin Luther King or Gandhi or Cesar Chavez would have sent us a proposal. You know, <laughs> you know I mean, what would the write-up from the program officer look like? Be, you know. So if we would maybe just cop to the fact that we're not being risky and say, okay, we're going to be risky with this amount of money and 80% of these may fail, I mean, that may put us in a better position than where we are today. Let's presume that philanthropy needs to be better at governance and accountability and transparency, you know, and make me get rid of my Learjet and my Porsche, right? Um, that's a joke for those of you <laughs> from the media that are here. Um, but, but what I'm concerned about is that what's happening actually in the atmosphere makes us more risk-averse because it's like, oh, boy, look what happened at the Getty. Look what happened at Irvine. Let's just kind of lay low. The advocacy thing and the politics thing, and you know, let's just kind of make our grant and you know, disavow any knowledge of kind of what happens after you make the grant, right? So I think at a time when philanthropy and the nonprofit sector need to step up because we have ideas, we have data, we have approaches that are working that are grounded in the real experiences of communities and be risky about selling and pushing and driving that change, it's a much easier time to just kind of keep your head down because if you can't be hit, if you can't be seen kind of thing. Yes, I know you mentioned you didn't want to talk about transparency, but I think it's an important issue, particularly for nonprofit organizations, to um, uh, reduce that or diffuse that power gradient that exists. So if you could talk a little bit about that. And um, nonprofits often focus on the needs of the community, the needs of the organization, and they don't focus often enough, I think, on the needs of the foundation. Can you explain or perhaps share how to get at that? Yeah, and let me talk about that in relation to our own California endowment. Let me talk about how we have been viewing that to make it more concrete. Um, The transparency begins with candor, both ways, I think. It's not just transparency about, you know, how we um, compensate foundation executives and, you know, that kind of thing. Yes, of course you have to have that kind of transparency, but the transparency is about an honest relationship, right? So for us, this is kind of the conversation we think we're having with our grantees. You could find out from our grantees whether it looks like that to them. But we're hoping to have. One, okay, we'll fund services. We will fund services. However, the provision of dollars to provide services has got to be tied to an advocacy or systems change or problem-solving agenda. Okay? No numbers without stories. No stories without numbers. Secondly, We want you to think more proactively about your role as an advocate for systems change. And, in fact, we just started an advocacy training program. We were bringing in people who know how to do this, who do this for a living. They train people on how to advocate for change, how to talk to a policymaker, how to move and mobilize around an agenda. And we're hoping that most of our grantees are going to get in the advocacy game. The services are important, but we want you to move from do-gooder to change agent. And some people are going to be uncomfortable with that. They don't want to do that. And that has to be an honest conversation. All right? 
That's where we're headed. And for the nonprofit sector, we need to be able to hear back sort of, you know, how that works or doesn't work. The third area of transparency is this notion that the only thing we bring to the table is a grant, you know, the ATM machine. Well, what we're working on right now, and Gwen Walden is available to talk to others about this, something we're calling grassroots to treetops. What are the resources and assets that a foundation can bring to the nonprofit sector above and beyond the grant? In some cases, it is a facilitation or convening or brokering uh, partnerships or you know, other kinds of advocacy that we can provide, which is why we created a downtown facility called the Center for Healthy Communities that provides a place that is in much in line with what Zocalo is doing. This is a dab of adhesive for social capital in this region. We're trying to support that with what we're doing in terms of making our facility available as a place to solve problems and go above and beyond just the making of a grant. So I would hope the transparency is about what is ailing the nonprofit sector, what are they worried about, how can we best support them, but also the conversation goes two ways. And we may not always agree. We probably won't always agree. But can we talk about a change agenda and a change strategy for the underserved and marginalized of this community that is akin to building a cathedral, a sustainable place of change, rather than the mere giving of a grant? You've been listening to Robert K. Ross, MD, President and CEO of the California Endowment. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Special thanks to the Los Angeles Times and the James Irvine Foundation for making this program possible. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit our website, ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. O-R-G. The producer for Zocalo is Peter Stencil. Jade Gao is our engineer. I'm Marcos Fromer. Thanks for listening. The Amundsen Theater invites you to win tickets to the world premiere of Curtains, the new backstage murder mystery musical comedy starring David Hyde Pierce. Be one of the first to see this hilarious brand new musical in its limited run before it heads off to Broadway. Curtains, beginning July 25th at the Amundsen Theater. Check out kpcc.org for a special trivia contest to find out how you can win tickets. Do you want some ideas on things to do, where to go, and what to see? Sign up for KPCC's themed monthly arts and culture newsletter. It's delivered to your inbox every month. Visit kpcc.org and click on the newsletters link to sign up. There are a little bit of funk and a little bit of fun. He learned his tunes from the Bible when his mama told him what he could eat. So he jumped on top of his organ when he drove it down Peachtree Street. The music of the Code Talkers. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Weekday mornings on 89.3 KPCC. This is 89.3 KPCC, Pasadena, Los Angeles, a public service of Pasadena City College, serving Southern California for over...